Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Great to be able to uh, unpack the Bible with you this morning. And I just want to be uh, straight from the outset. This book is really hard to understand at times. Does anyone else know that? Just wave at me if you... Some of you are Bible experts. Many of you just acknowledge this is a hard book to understand at times. It really is. I I love reading the Bible. I will uh, read the Bible most days. And sometimes I'll be sitting in my chair early in the morning, and I'll read some things, and I'll think, what on earth did I just read? And I'll read it again, and I'll think, what is that saying? I don't understand it. I can't get my head around it. This is a tough book to read at times. It's it's all uh, true. It's all equally profitable for us. But it's not all equally clear. The Bible itself even admits that and acknowledges that. The the Apostle Peter, who is is one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, he's schooled by Jesus for three years. He writes in one of his letters about the letters of Paul, the Apostle, and he says, Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. That some people with the wrong motives twist to their own uh, kind of um, desires. He acknowledges, the Bible itself acknowledges that it is in places hard to understand. And today's passage is one of those passages which is hard to understand. We're going to be in Luke chapter 21. As Tim's mentioned, we've been working through this series of messages in the Bible book of Luke, looking at Jesus' life, his teachings, his miracles, and his death and resurrection, which are coming uh, very soon. We're coming towards the end of the book. And Jesus is in Jerusalem uh, ahead of the, the Passover festival. Thousands of people are flocking in to Jerusalem as, as they would have done every single year. And Jesus has been teaching in the temple. And last week, uh, Tim uh, covered the section where Jesus points out a widow giving her offering into the offering buckets at the temple, whatever it looked like. And he praises her because even though she had very little, she gives sacrificially from what she has. And he's continuing to teach. And as he's teaching, he and the disciples are watching some people admiring the stones uh, at the temple. This building was a magnificent building. The temple in Jerusalem was really one of the wonders of the world. It was ornate, it was beautiful, and people are looking at the, the, the bricks and thinking, wow, this is incredible. Some people love the, the beauty of church buildings, don't they? And they love the, the choral singing and, and the, 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 the fancy dress that people might wear, uh, the vicars and the priests and so on might wear. Some people love that. And sometimes, though, it can be a bit of a distraction or a bit of a as long as it's pretty and beautiful and not offensive to me and speaking into my life, then, then it's okay. A lot of people, in fact, would be happy with that in this nation. They say, I'm happy for uh, church to, to, to exist. I'm happy for, for Christianity to exist as long as it's not offensive to me, as long as it's not challenging me at all, as long as it's not speaking into my life at all. It can just be beautiful and pretty and we can admire the, the lovely stones and the buildings. For a lot of people who may even write down Christian on the census, that's kind of their experience. As long as it's beautiful and not offensive and speaking into my life, then it can exist. And these people are looking at the temple stones and thinking, wow, isn't this beautiful? And they're kind of missing the point. This is the place in which God would dwell by the Spirit, where where they could meet with God in an amazing way. And Jesus points out these people and he says, look at these stones. I want to tell you this right now. He he drops a bomb, really, here. He says, this is all going to come down. And soon there's going to be not one stone left on top of another. This was a huge moment. Like This was the epicenter of the universe for the Jewish people, the temple. And Jesus is saying, a time's coming soon where not one stone is going to be left on top of another. And so understandably, the disciples ask, when? When is this going to happen? When's all this going to take place, Jesus? And what we read and what we're going to read is Jesus' response to that. So here we are. 
Luke chapter 21 and verse 5 onwards. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Let's just pause it right there. One of the reasons why what we're about to read is a very tricky passage is because Jesus begins to prophesy. He begins to speak into some things that have not yet come to pass. And as this passage unfolds, he's speaking about some things that are near, that would happen in the next generation. And he's speaking about some things that will happen at the end of all time when he returns in glory. And this is kind of why it looks tricky on first reading. But if we understand and and grasp that he's kind of alternated between near and far, then we'll be okay. So let's read Jesus' response to their question, when will these things happen? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, this is speaking now into the near future, before all this, They will lay their hands on you and persecute you. This is what he's saying to his disciples. Delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountainside, And let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled." A little bit more. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, Straighten up your head, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. It's a tricky passage. 
This is hard to get our heads around. It's hard to understand what is Jesus talking about here. Well, firstly, let's address the question that the disciples ask. They ask, when is it going to happen? When is this temple going to come down? And Jesus doesn't give them a time frame. He doesn't give them a straight answer to that question. Instead, he seeks to prepare them. He wants to prepare them, and we're going to come on to that in a little while, and we're going to look how we might be prepared for the other things that he speaks of in this passage. He wants to prepare them. That's the first thing. He doesn't give them an exact time. He, he resists this kind of countdown approach to prophecy. Some people love this stuff. They, they look at books like Revelation in the Bible, and they look at the events that take place in there, and they think, oh, that must be this particular event that happened in world history. That must be Donald Trump. That must be Israel. All this kind of stuff. And they, they embrace this kind of countdown approach to prophecy. And, and I want to tell you this, friends, from the bottom of my heart, that is not the way to read Revelation. Revelation cannot mean for us what it did not mean for the original recipients of that letter. That John, the Apostle John, in his old age, received a vision from, of Jesus from God, and it's a vision of Jesus in total victory over Satan's sin and death. It's a vision that is to give courage to persecuted Christians. At the time when John sent that vision onto the churches, these Christians were being persecuted by the Emperor Nero, who was literally making Christians into candlesticks. And so that vision of Jesus in total victory over Satan and sin and death is to give them courage in the midst of real adversity. Not kind of, we've got to wear masks in church adversity. I'm talking about real adversity. This is to give them courage. And so the visions that John has in Revelation are, what does he see next? He sees another window into the total victory of Jesus over Satan, sin, and death. It's not a sequence of kind of like linear events. Well, then that must happen, and that must be the Vietnam War, and then that must be this, and that must be that. Listen, it cannot mean for us what it did not mean for them. And so we must reject this kind of countdown approach to prophecy. And Jesus rejects it here. Instead, he wants to prepare them. He speaks into some things that are going to come, and they're going to come about, but he wants to prepare them. He wants to prepare them. How does he prepare them? Well, firstly, he shows them that he is the ruler of history. He shows them that he knows the end from the beginning. Listen, friends, that might sound frightening to you that someone might be the ruler of history. Especially when all that's going on in the world, we look around and we think, how on earth, how can the person who's ruling all history be good? What, when we look at what's going on in, in India, and it's horrendous. We must pray for that nation. And other parts around the world, different things going on. We must pray. We might think to ourselves, how is, it good, how is it good news that someone is ruling all history? It's good news when we understand the heart of the one who rules all history. When we understand that Jesus is the ruler of all history. He's the God of Isaiah 46. Let me read this to you. This is what we read. Verse 8, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Je Jesus is this God. 
Jesus is the ruler of all history. There is no difference in character between Jesus and God. There's no, there's no sort of mean, evil God standing behind the back of Jesus. No, the same Jesus that we've read about and been inspired by as we've gone through this book, the same Jesus who would have pity on the lepers who are outcast by their society, who would have pity on them and bring healing to them, the same Jesus who looked upon the crowds and wept because he had compassion for them, the same Jesus who would forgive the, the woman who was caught in adultery in this, this awful situation. This is in the book of John. And, it, and he forgives her and says, go and sin no more. The same Jesus who has compassion upon her. The same Jesus who, uh, who healed the centurion servant. The, the centurion who was, a, who was a Gentile invader and who was an enemy of the people in many respects, although he was a decent man from what we read, he was an enemy of the people. Jesus heals his servant with just a word. This is the Jesus who is the ruler of all history. This is, this is the one who rules all history. This is the Jesus who lifted up women in a society where they had no voice and they had no uh, kind of rights really to kind of follow a rabbi around. He had women following him around. We read that in Luke 7. He had women following him around, playing a meaningful part of his team. This is the same Jesus who had compassion upon the crowds and fed multitudes. It's that same Jesus who rules history. The same Jesus who, as we're going to see as this book unfolds, who would die in agony and rejected on the cross. This is the Jesus who rules history, who would do that for you and I so that we might be completely forgiven for all of our wrongdoing. This is the ruler of all. And he shows himself to his disciples as the one who knows the end from the beginning. He, he is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Hebrews 1 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So we can be encouraged by this, friends. Jesus rules history. It's not some mean, nasty God. No, no, we look at, we look at Jesus and we see what God is like. Jesus knows the end from the beginning. So he first, he shows himself to be the ruler of history, and then he gives four commands in this passage. Firstly, he says, don't be deceived and led astray. He says, people are going to come pretending to be me, saying, it's, I'm, I'm back, everyone. And that's happened in history. That has happened. People have claimed to be Jesus and claiming that he's come again, and it's gone very, very badly. It's happened several times. People have died completely convinced that some wacko is, is, is Jesus. It's very clear, the Bible is very clear, when Jesus returns, every eye will see him. There's not going to be any ambiguity about it. There's not going to be any lack of clarity. Is this Jesus? Is he back? No, the world will know. And there'll be some that won't be quite as obvious as that. There'll be some that will be more subtle and will come with teaching that sounds plausible, it sounds attractive, it sounds quite appealing. Listen, False teachers, they don't normally come with something that sounds really repulsive because it's got to, it's got to be appealing, hasn't it? It's got, to be, it's got to kind of tickle our ears a little bit. It's got to give us what we want to hear. And so it's normally quite plausible sounding and quite um, appealing. And friends, we've got to be the people who, who know this book. Even though it's hard at times to understand, even though it's hard to get our heads around some of it, We've got to be those that are chewing on this, chewing on the word of God, so that when we hear something that's false, we just instantly know it doesn't taste right. 
doesn't seem right. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. He talks about being a good shepherd. And the sheep also know the voice of the one that's not the shepherd. So you kind of, when you're in this, when you just, it just becomes part of your life, I'm just going to read the scriptures, you, you'll start to pick up on things and think, oh, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't taste right. That, that teaching doesn't, doesn't sit right with me. It becomes something you just discern. We need to be those hungry for God's word so that we're not deceived and led astray. Secondly, he says, don't be terrified about world events. This couldn't come at a better time, could it? That, that command couldn't, be, it couldn't come at a better time. Don't be terrified by world events. He acknowledges that these things are terrible. He says, it, he says as much in verse 11. The irony is that right now there's, there's a lot going on in the world which has gone on in the world for millennia. And yet we hear about it now. We hear about it now through 24-hour news channels. We hear about it perhaps, you know, too much, I would suggest. I was really uh, helped by some words from a a UK-based pastor called Jared Cooper a few months ago. He said this, The human psyche is simply not designed for the 24-7 news cycle of doom. It will make you ill. When the towers fell on 9-11, we watched those towers fall 100 times within days. For millennia, we have never had access to such relived horror and sorrow, nor have we tested its effects on us adequately. The availability of non-stop sorrow, terror and grief in full HD by a media vying for your attention is not going to lead to health, faith and love. Instead, it leads to compassion fatigue, fear and even depression. Since the advent of a 24-7 news cycle, let's realize that our attention is the product that is being traded. They sell our focus to advertise for millions, and thus they present the news in the best possible way to capture your interest. Have you ever wondered why 90% of the news is bad news? It's not because it's a true reflection of the world, but because it sells, it captures, it piques our fight-or-flight response and hooks in our attention. Thus the news is not the truth, but merely that which sells, fascinates, and triggers a human response to suffering, injustice, or gossip. Use the news, but don't let the news use you. Use the news, but don't let the news use you. Listen, we are, this, these words of Jesus are saying, do not be afraid, do not be terrified, couldn't come at a more apt time, I don't think. We are being bombarded with, be afraid, be terrified, all of the time. And friends, we... We're not to be afraid. We're not to be terrified. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Caution. That's okay. But to live in fear, to be terrified of some things, that's not, okay. that's not a Christian response. It's not a Christian response. I was speaking to a friend the other day. Uh, he's, he was speaking to me about a friend of his who's in some kind of leadership in the church that he leads. And he had been out for the first time in 14, 15 months the other day. I'm going to leave that on. Um, he was speaking about someone who, uh, a friend of his, who had um, not been out of his house for 15 months and who uh, ventured out the other day, who is a Christian, and within about an hour had to go back home and he said, I'm not going to go out for a few more months. And, and, and listen, that fear can grip us in a way that is not healthy and is not in line with what God wants for us. It's not. And so I just want to, I want to encourage us with, with those 
words, do not be afraid. How can it be that we are not afraid? Well, Jesus gives us two reasons here. Firstly, he says that we have an indestructible hope. He, he says to his disciples here, he says, some of you are going to be, you're going to be handed over to be killed. He makes that very clear. And then just two verses later, he says, but don't be afraid because not a hair on your head will perish. So what's he getting at there? He's saying you've got something indestructible. You've got something inside of you that can never be taken away. You've got something, you have an indestructible joy, an indestructible inheritance because you're a Christian that can never be taken away from you. We have something, friends, that is inside of us, this hope of of glory that cannot be taken away from us, that no persecution, no disease, nothing can take away. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It cannot be taken away from us. There's nothing that can happen to or be done to a Christian that can remove from them their most precious possession. Your most precious possession is your salvation, knowing Jesus. And that cannot be taken away from you. So we are indestructible people. We're indestructible people with an indestructible joy and an indestructible hope. We need not be afraid. We need not fear. And the second reason Jesus says, do not fear, is because moments of hardship will be our opportunity. Moments of hardship will be our opportunity. He says this to his disciples. Jesus says, you're going to be handed over to the synagogues. You're going to be handed over to the rulers. You're going to have to give your defense uh, to, to people about why it is you're, you're preaching in my name. And do not meditate beforehand on what you're going to share. In fact, he says, settle it in your heart. There's some things Jesus wants us to settle, to not go back and forth on, but to settle on some things and say, I'm not going to try and have all of the right words. I'm not going to try and rehearse things so that I get everything spot on because Jesus says, I'm going to give you the words. He says, don't you don't need to fret about this. I'm going to give you the words that you need. I'm going to give you what you need to speak about me. He says, settle in your hearts. Don't try and practice this. Don't try and kind of go back and forth. What do I need to say? No, we live faithfully to Jesus. We walk with him. And then there'll be opportunities that will come our way. And sometimes that'll be even in the midst of persecution and kind of being told, well, you can't speak about Jesus, actually. You can't share Jesus with your colleagues. You can't share Jesus in this situation. And we'll have an opportunity to bring forth Jesus. We We needn't fear because even in difficulty... Even in hardship, there's opportunity to share Jesus. Finally, fourthly, Jesus says, raise your heads to the coming redemption. Raise your heads to your coming redemption. He says, your redemption is drawing near. And he says to his disciples, you need to lift up your head, straighten up, lift up your head to this day, to this day that that is coming near. Christian, if you're here this morning, you have been redeemed from the power of sin. You're no longer captive to sin. You no longer have to go wherever sin leads you. You can say no. You're redeemed fully. You're redeemed from the, the, the consequence eternally of your sin. Jesus has, has, has won for you salvation that you couldn't earn for yourself. He's got a place for you. He's preparing a place for you. He's redeemed you, and yet there's a redemption coming that we haven't yet known, which is the redemption of our bodies. We're going to get new bodies, hallelujah. 
Some of you thinking, yeah, I really need one. We all are going to get one. Praise God. And we're going to be with him for eternity. Our redemption is drawing near. John Piper, I saw on Twitter, said this week, as you get older, your life is not speeding away. Your life is fast approaching. It's good, isn't it? (laughs) Your life is fast approaching. There's a redemption that is drawing near. We're to lift our heads to this, friends. We're to lift our heads and to lift each other's heads to the sure and certain return of Jesus. He's going to come again and he's going to make all things new. And there'll be no more suffering and sickness and pain and death. There'll be none of this. The the, the 24-hour news cycle will be all good news. Praise God. A day is coming near. We need to lift each other's heads to this. And he'll say in verse, in verse 34, stay awake. Don't get, don't get lulled to sleep by the world's lullabies. <laughs> One of the greatest threats to us, friends, is not uh, governments or education systems increasingly you know, becoming secular and not so pro-Christian. No, one of the greatest threats is that we might just get lulled to sleep by the world's lullabies, lulled to distraction, lulled to kind of give ourselves over just to entertainment and... <sighs> And miss that Jesus is coming again. And miss that he's given us a mission to be on. And miss that he's got great things for us to walk into. We mustn't let ourselves be lulled to sleep. This is what it says in in Romans 13, verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We need to live with the, with the expectation of Jesus' return in our minds. It may come in our lifetime. It may not be for some time. We know that Jesus has not returned yet because God is being patient, willing that no one should perish, but that all should come to faith in Jesus. He wants as many people to come and turn to Jesus now before it's too late. Friends, there is... There is a flood coming to the world. I was sharing with a friend the other day. I was walking around the waterfront with him the other day. And uh, I, I pointed out the ark. We have an ark in our harbour. Isn't that mental? It's absolutely crazy. We've got a giant ark in our harbour. I don't know how long that's going to stay for. I think they've had trouble even getting it out of Ipswich. And I just pointed at him and said, look, you need to be in the ark. There's a flood coming of God's right anger towards sin and injustice. There's a flood coming. And you need to be in the ark, just like in the days of Noah. And the ark is Jesus. The ark is Jesus. Have you thrown yourself upon him? Have you said, I'm in, Lord Jesus, I trust in you and you alone. Are you in the ark? I want to ask you this morning, are you in the ark? You can today. You can say as we stand in just a moment, I wonder if the band could be ready. We're going to respond in in worship. But you can respond now. You can say, Jesus, I give myself to you. I belong to you. I, 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 there's this flood coming and I want to make sure I'm in you. You can give your life to him today. And for everyone else here who maybe already knows this Jesus, let's lift our heads. Let's, let's straighten up and lift our heads to the sure and certain return of Jesus. He's coming again, friends. He's coming again. We need not fear. We need not fear all that we see around us. We don't need to be terrified. We don't need to walk around kind of with fear in our hearts. He is with us and he's given us something that is indestructible. So let's stand where we are, shall we? I want to lead us in prayer.
And these guys are going to lead us in a song that speaks of life being found in Jesus, life being in his name. Listen, you, you won't find popularity in his name. Jesus says in this, this passage we've just read, people are going to hate you because of me. If you're, if you're running after being popular and being the person that everyone likes, this isn't for you. But there's life found in his name, true life. True life found in his name. People might reject you, even your own family might reject you. But there's life found in his name. He's coming again, friends. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You're the ruler of all history. And Lord, it gives us comfort to know it's you that rules all history. Lord Jesus, you are the one who we can trust. Lord, it's not knowing all the facts. It's not knowing every bit of news that we can know in order to try and control things. No, knowing you gives us peace. You know the end from the beginning. And Lord Jesus, we trust you. Help us to live without fear. Help us to live with our heads lifted to our coming redemption. Help us to know our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Our life is not uh, speeding away from us. No, our life is fast approaching. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that truth. I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know this for themselves. I pray for anyone who has not got onto the ark, who has not said, I'm in on this. I pray that right now they would respond to you and know you to be their saviour. Come and strengthen us, I pray now, as we worship. Strengthen our hearts, Lord. Help us revel in the indestructible joy that we have within. In Jesus' name, amen.